Mark chapter 6, continuing in our study of the book of Mark, we pick it up in verse 45. Mark 6, verse 45. It says, And immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the multitude away. And after bidding them farewell, he departed to the mountain to pray. And when it was evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were frightened. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were greatly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened." And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they had come out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about the whole country and began to carry about on their pallets those who were sick to place them to, uh, to the place they heard he was. And wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and entreating him that, he might just, that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were being cured. Lord, this morning in your word, we ask that you would work miraculous things in our hearts, even as we see you did amazing things in our text. And God, we believe you to be the same God yesterday, today, and forever. That Jesus, the sorts of things that you did during your ministry here on earth, you can do in our lives and in our community and on this coastline now. And so increase our faith as we come to your word, Lord. Instruct us in the difficult things of our lives. Give us the faith that would cause us to come before your throne of grace in time of need that we might receive help from you. That we would bring others before you, even as these people did, that we would bring those in need, those who are sick and lamed and hurt, that we would bring them before you, trusting you to do miraculous things in their lives. And so we understand, God, that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So Jesus, instruct us now by your Holy Spirit. Take my thoughts and my heart and my lips, and let them be used as instruments for your glory and your purpose and your kingdom now. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the message this morning is Sinking Ships and Settled Souls. Sinking Ships and Settled Souls. And this week's text is very closely related to last week. You remember that last week we saw the feeding of the 5,000, or really it was more than 5,000, wasn't it? It was 5,000 men who were numbered, but there were women and children. We saw the feeding of the multitude, and we understood that beyond just feeding the people, the purpose that Jesus had in that was to train the disciples, Because we recall that he began to involve the disciples. He began to reveal certain things to them in the hopes that he might develop in them a servant's heart that they would be useful for the kingdom for years to come. Remember that? Remember how Jesus did this in our text last week? First of all, he exposed his disciples to the need. You remember that he asked Philip. We looked in the parallel account of John 6. And Jesus turned to Philip and he said, Uh, Philip, there's several thousand people coming now and they're hungry. What should we do? And it said in the next verse that this he said to test him because Jesus himself knew what he intended to do. He wanted to test Philip to see whether or not Philip would respond with faith. But more importantly, he wanted to involve Philip in his work. He wanted to involve Philip in the meeting of the needs. But any time that Jesus seeks to involve us in his work, he's going to make sure that the work is beyond us. Amen? He's going to make sure that the work is beyond our means, beyond what we could do in and of ourselves. Remember last week we discussed that is how we know it's God, is it's beyond us. How do we know of an opportunity from the Lord? Because we say, I can't do that. That's too much for me. That scares me. That's outside of my box. That's outside of my comfort zone. 
then it's probably the Lord calling you to do it. So he exposed them to the need. He made sure that the need was beyond them. In so doing, he revealed their inadequacy. They had to realize, we don't have the resources to meet the needs. Philip answered and said, Lord, 200 denarii worth of food would not be enough to feed them all. A denarii was a day's wages. 200 days wages would not be enough to feed these people, Lord. We don't have the resources. We don't have what it takes. And that was the very point. But God has the resources. God has what it takes. And God wants to distribute those resources. He wants to distribute His miracles and His grace and His mercy through you and I. Right? It's not our ability. It is our availability. So, He revealed their inadequacy that they might realize that they needed God to carry out the work. And then lastly, in our text last week, he enabled their hands. You remember, it was Jesus that performed the miracle of blessing the bread and multiplying the bread and multiplying the fish. But we're told that as he multiplied it, he handed it to the disciples, and then the disciples distributed it to the people. You see, because they were available... He enabled their hands. He put the resources in their hands. He put the power in their hands. He put everything that they needed to meet the people's needs in their hands. Whenever God is going to move in our lives, He's going to move through us and the lives of those around us. That's simply His chosen vehicle. And then we saw lastly in our text last week that those who serve the disciples went away with a surplus, with an overflow, with extra. The 5,000 plus, they came and they ate and they were filled. Amen, hooray, hurrah. They were filled. Everything was cool. But the disciples who served alongside with Jesus, they each collected a basket full of the leftovers and they went away with more. And we gleaned the lesson. That those who come saying, Lord, uh, or those who come saying not, what can I get, but what can I give, go away with more. When our attitude is to pour into others, God pours into us abundantly. When it's just me, me, and mine, mine, God will meet our needs. But it's not super abundantly as when you're seeking to meet the needs of others. And so Jesus did an amazing job at training the 12 in that scenario. And now he does something immediately on the hills of that that miracle that continues to train the disciples. They were in need of further instruction. Read with me now verse 52, which is absolutely astounding. It says in verse 52 of Mark 6, that they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Wait a minute. They hadn't gained any insight from Jesus taking five loaves and two fish and feeding several thousand? Seeing him multiply it with his hands, seeing the leftovers, seeing all that took place, they hadn't gained any insight. It seems unbelievable to us. It says instead that their heart was hardened. Another translation says they considered not the miracle of the loaves. Another one says that they had not understood. The idea here of understanding and considering and having insight is this in the original language. It's the idea of collecting together the individual features of an object into a whole as collecting the pieces of a puzzle and putting them together. It's the idea of putting together the pieces, piecing together the puzzle. You see, the disciples weren't able to put all the pieces together concerning what Jesus did. They missed it. They didn't consider it. They didn't have insight. They didn't have understanding. They didn't put the pieces of the puzzle together. What puzzle? It's very simple. The puzzle of their inadequacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That was the lesson they were supposed to learn. That they were inadequate to meet the needs because pretty soon Jesus would be ascended and they would be left alone, so to speak, to meet the needs. And they had to be taught, you will never be able to meet all the needs in and of yourself. And church, we need to know that. There's tremendous needs in our community. There's tremendous needs at this moment among the youth. There's amazing needs for the marriages in our community. There's amazing needs for salvation and for the truth to be heralded. But we will never meet all these needs in and of ourselves. But Christ is sufficient for all of them. They didn't put that puzzle together. Instead, their heart was hardened. 
instead of seeing the picture, their senses were dulled. It became callous. Their hearts became insensible to the touch. Understand, saints, the miraculous does not always produce faith in believers. Miracles do not always produce faith in believers. Faith unlocks miracles. Remember that Jesus had said in the gospel of him, he did not do many miracles there because they had not faith in certain cities. He didn't do many miracles there because he had not faith. Faith in God unlocks the power of God. It unlocks the miraculous. But the miraculous, the Bible doesn't teach that that necessarily increases faith. The disciples saw it and their heart was hardened, not enlightened. Think about Israel. Israel, during the Exodus, when they were let out, they witnessed miraculous things. The parting of the Red Sea, the plagues before that, the manna that they ate in the wilderness, God's bringing them to the land, the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. And yet when they finally got to the promised land, they did not enter in because of unbelief. A lack in faith of what God said. It's amazing to me that they saw all those things. They saw the Red Sea part in two and they walked through it. Hello? That God was manifest in the pillar of fire and the cloud by night that they wake up in the morning and oh golly, there's food for us to eat. And yet it didn't increase their faith. And so they weren't allowed to enter in the promised land because of a lack of faith, a lack of belief in God's promises. And so what did God do in response? God caused them now to wander in the wilderness for almost 40 years. He said, you haven't got faith, so you need a wilderness experience. You see, when we don't get it, that God is able, he's going to be sure to get our attention. In his love and wisdom, he will either give us a wilderness experience or he will allow us to spend some time in the storm. And that's what we see going on this morning. It says in verse 44, And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves, and immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go to the other side. Notice, it was immediately after the miracle, and it says that he made the disciples get into the boat. That word in the Greek is anikazo. It means to force or compel by violence. Jesus forced them to get in the boat. I don't believe that he was violent with them. It also means to force or compel by authoritative command. Jesus didn't say, hey guys, what do you think about maybe like getting in the boat and like going for a little ride or something, if you want. He said, you guys, right now, right now, get your baskets, come on. But we want to talk to the people. We want to talk more about this miracle and stuff and we want to hang out with the people. No, no, get your baskets and get in the boat. But Jesus, we're, 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 we just ate. We're so full. We might get seasick. Get your baskets. Get in the boat right now. Oh, okay. Well, are you coming with us? No, get in the boat. Go, go. Well, Jesus, come with us. No, you go. But we came with you. Go now. He made them get in the boat. He forced them. He compelled them to get in the boat. Now, what followed was a storm. Did Jesus know about the storm? Oh, golly, I wonder. Jesus had a purpose in forcing them into the boat and then into the storm. God always has a purpose in the storms in our lives. He always does. If we are following him, there will be times when he forces us into the midst of a storm. There will be times when he supernaturally orchestrates circumstances to be difficult for us. Trials and tribulations. Jesus has a purpose in these when we are following him. Remember the disciples had followed him. He said, come away with me when they are on the other side. They got in the boat with him. They came to the other side. And now he sent them away. The whole time they've been with Jesus and the whole time they've been obedient to Jesus. Understand that when you are being obedient, truly following the Lord, you can expect storms from time to time. Now, don't confuse storms from God with consequences of sin. Don't confuse the two. I so often talk to people, and they'll say, man, I'm in this mess and this and that and so on and so forth and the other. And I say, well, what did you do? Well, we did this. 
then we, we did this, and I've been doing that, but this, and so on, and so forth. And I say, listen, that is not a trial. Quit telling me you're in a trial. Oh, God is testing me. God is not testing you. You made a mess of your life. Sin always has consequences in the here and now. The eternal consequence has been removed, amen, by the blood of Jesus Christ. But there are always temporal consequences because by them we are trained even as a child is trained by discipline. Jesus said, get a grip. You will reap what you sow. God will not be mocked. So in following Jesus and being in the midst of his will, there's going to be storms. In disobedience, there's going to be consequences. The purpose of those is that we reap what we sow. The purpose of the storms when we're following Christ is that he might reveal something wonderful to us, something that he considers important for us to know. So here's what they were going to learn in this storm. Number one, they were going to learn that they had to come to the end of themselves. They had to come to the end of themselves. It has been said that the end of yourself is the beginning of God. Number two, they were going to learn to see Jesus for who he really was. In the fullness of his character, who he demands to be recognized as. And number three, they were going to learn God-reliance and not self-reliance. There was going to come a change in their life from self-reliance to God-reliance. Remember how it all began back in verse 31 of Mark chapter 6 verse 31, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a lonely place for a while. This whole thing started at the invitation of Jesus for the disciples to spend some special time with him, to walk with him, to be with him. And what it has turned into is an amazing adventure. The feeding of the 5,000. Now is going to come the storm. And then is going to come the walking of Jesus on the water. And then is going to come the walking of Peter on the water and the momentary sinking. And then the rescuing of Peter. And then Jesus getting in the boat and the calming of the storm. And the coming to the other side and the people coming around and wanting to touch his cloak and being healed when they do. You see, it started at the simple invitation of come along or come away and be alone with me. And it turned into an amazing adventure. That is biblical Christianity. If your Christianity is not a daily adventure, I'm sorry, but you're doing it wrong. You're missing something. You're doing it wrong. Read in the Bible for me, please. A time that people were with Jesus and it was boring. Show me one. It was full of adventure. It was unbelievable. And so in being with Jesus, it involved for them two things in Mark chapter 6. Ministry and misery. That is walking with the Lord. Ministry and misery. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 10 says that each of you has been given a special gift. Use it, therefore, in the serving of one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God or God's grace in its various form. Everyone has a special gift. Every single person has a special gift by which they can distribute the grace of God to the people around them, representing God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 says that we are God's fellow workmen. So when we're walking with Jesus, he will see to it that we are involved in ministry, in serving him. It doesn't always have to be within the church. There are those who are called to minister within the church and those who are called to minister outside the church. I praise God for those who are on the front lines, in the workplace, working in a place, just being a witness, just being a faithful friend, just being there when called upon. That's ministry. Secondly, walking with Jesus involves misery. Jesus said, In this world you are going to have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus will see to it that we experience some degree of God-wrought misery in our lives. Not because he wants to destroy us. He doesn't bring storms into our lives to sink our ships. He brings storms into our lives to settle our souls. Romans chapter 5 exhibits that perfectly. Romans 5, I'll just read it to you quick. You can go there if you want. Romans chapter 5 says this most amazing thing. It 
says, and not only this in verse 3, not only this, but we also exult in tribulation or we rejoice in hard times, Paul says, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. You see, because God wants to give us hope in this lifetime, and proving character as a Christian, and because he wants to develop in us perseverance, he will bring to us trials and tribulations. He will absolutely see to it that there are storms, not ones that sink our ships, but one that settles our souls and gives us hope. And so in ministry, walking with Jesus, we labor with God, but in, ministry, in misery as we follow Jesus, we experience God or we see Him more fully. Can anybody testify to the fact that God has never seemed nearer than at the worst moment in your life? That God has never proven Himself more faithful than at the difficult times? It's when everything is comfortable that we just kind of go on cruise control. But all of a sudden, when everything falls apart, we begin to see him more fully in his faithfulness, and that's when the puzzle comes together. That's when the puzzle comes together is in the difficult times. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 46 of Mark 6. And after bidding them farewell, he departed to the mountain to pray. Verse 47, and when it was evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea, and Jesus was alone on land. So Jesus sends him away, and then he goes up on the mountain to pray, and Jesus is there alone praying. Now, remember in Mark chapter 4, the very end of it, there was another storm. This is not the first storm that Jesus has led them into. There's always going to be more than one in your life. This is not the first time. Mark chapter 4, they got in the boat and they went to the other side and there was a storm at that time as well. But Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat. It says in Mark 4 that he was asleep on the pillow in the midst of a storm when they thought they were going to sink. How could he be so at peace in the midst of the storm? Because he's a prince of peace. That's what it's a picture of. Jesus is a prince of peace. And when circumstances are raging and our world seems to be spinning out of control, God is in control. Amen? He is absolutely at peace because he is totally on the throne. God never flips out. He never freaks out. He never panics. He never despairs. He never has to rush because he is in control. He knows the beginning from the end. And so Jesus, the prince of peace, was sleeping in the back of the boat during that storm. And you'll remember that at the end of that storm, they got to the other side, just like Jesus had told them, let's go to the other side. And they encountered Legion. Remember Legion? He was a man possessed by several thousand demons. And Jesus cast the demons out of this guy. And the guy was absolutely transformed. We remember from that lesson that there was nobody in the community that could do anything for this dude. Nobody could do anything for him. No social worker, no program, no self-help gig, no amount of self-esteem. Nothing could do anything for this man except for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ set him free with the word. And the man was finally clothed and in his right mind. He said to Jesus, Jesus, I want to go with you. Wherever you go, I want to follow you. And you remember Jesus said, no, you can't. I need you to stay here and go to your own people and tell them the wonderful things that God has done for you. Go testify. Don't come with me now. You go to your people and you testify. Now, look at God's wisdom in storms. We're going to learn right now that storms in our lives will not only bless us, they will bless those around us. God's just that good. He's bigger than just your life. Storms in our life are sure not only to bless us, but to bless others. The disciples came through that storm by the hand of God. They get to the other side. The demoniac is cured. And you remember that the people, even though the, demon, the demon-possessed man was cured, the people said, Jesus, we want you gone. We don't want you on our land. Get out of here. They rejected him. The Gerasenes did. It was in the land of Gerasene. They rejected him in the land of Gennesaret. Go away, Jesus. We don't want you. Now, after that man having gone and told them of what the Lord did, look at the result in verse 53. <clears throat> 
After this storm, and when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret, the same place. And now the reaction is, verse 54, and when they had come out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him because he had been there in chapter 5. And they ran about the whole country and began to carry about on the pallets those who were sick to the place where they heard he was. And wherever he entered, villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and begging him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak and as many as touched it were being cured. Just a chapter ago, they said, Lord, get out of here. We don't want you. And after this man's simple testimony, they said, Lord, please, we want you. We're going to get every single sick person and bring him to your feet that you might heal him. Listen, saints, there is nothing more powerful in the lives around you than your testimony. There is nothing more powerful than that. This man hadn't been trained in evangelism. He hadn't been trained in theology. He hadn't been trained in anything. He was a psycho, lunatic, demon-possessed guy who was simply set free by Jesus. And Jesus just said, just go tell him what I've done for you. Now, every one of us can do that. Just testify. Just tell them. Is it scary sometimes? Oh, yeah, for sure. Are people going to scoff sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. But it is powerful in the hands of God. And in this case, it changed a whole region, the testimony of one man. Why can't that happen on our coastline? It absolutely can. Just start telling people what Jesus has done for you. Tell them about the storms. Tell them about the times when you were in bondage. Tell them about the times when you felt tormented. Tell them about the times that nobody could help you but Jesus Christ. They're going to want to argue theology? Forget about it. If you know how to defend the faith on that point at that moment, praise the Lord. If not, just say, hey dude, all I'm telling you is I was blind and now I see. God is going to use that. God is good. Amen. So now that we're in another storm and Jesus was wanting to develop them further, he makes a change in operation. In the previous storm, he was with them in the boat, though he slumbered. In this storm, he is not going to be with them anymore. Now he says, you get in the boat, you go to the other side all by yourselves. It's like teaching a little kid to ride a bike, you know. When they're first learning, you hold on to the seat, right? And you're holding on, they say, Papa, don't let go. And you're running behind him. Then there comes a moment where you... You got to let him go. You got to let him go. See, Jesus at this moment just says, you're in the boat by yourselves now, guys. It's going to take a little faith. Listen, it's going to take a little faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Certain of what we do not see. We don't see God per se physically manifest now and we don't see the fulfillment of all of his promises yet. But we believe that God is and that he is faithful. Let me share with you my own experience in life. God will take you through seasons in life. There will be certain seasons where his presence is so clear in your life. He's just doing something in your heart. He's just doing something in your being that it's just undeniable. It doesn't matter what anyone says. You know that you know that you know God is just tangible to you. Do you know what I'm talking about? where you're just going, oh, Lord, you're with me. Every time I wake up, every time I go to bed, all through the day, I'm just communing with you. This is so great. And then there comes a moment where the Lord goes, he lets go of the seat of the bike. He sends you into the boat by yourself, and he goes, okay, now walk by faith. Not feeling now. You're not going to feel anything for a little while. You're going to have to come, and you're going to have to worship me without a single feeling. You're going to have to go through your daily life feeling as though I were far off from you, but I'm not. Because now I'm requiring you to walk by faith. Because he told us in the New Testament, in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, the righteous shall walk by faith and not by sight. And I might add, by feeling. The righteous shall walk by faith, not by sight, and certainly not by feeling. And so he'll let go of the seat. He'll send you out in the boat and say, now walk by faith. Believe my promises. Believe what I've written in the Word. Though you can't see me, though you don't feel me, though it seems as though I'm far off, just believe my word and continue to be obedient. This happens in my life all the time. There's a cycle that God does. There's a time where he is so near, just tangible. And other times where I go, Lord, is this real? Do you exist? And at that moment, it requires faith. 
Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We often call it dry times. Are you in a dry time? Be faithful. Continue to be faithful to God. Act according to His Word, regardless of how you feel or how circumstances look. God is training you. He is raising you up. He is instructing you in walking by faith. It's a wonderful thing that He does. Now, He never leaves us or forsakes us. We may not feel Him, but He is there still. He didn't remove Himself entirely from these guys. He went up on the mountain to pray. In fact, His perspective was perfect, wasn't it? He went up on the mountain to pray to the Father. His perspective was perfect. He could see all the water. He could see the whole of the lake. He could see all 12 guys in the boat. And he knew exactly what was going on. The book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 25, declares that Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to Him through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. The Bible declares in Ephesians chapter 1 that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. So where's Jesus right now? He's high and exalted at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for you and I. You see, he's got a perfect perspective on your situation. Though we won't see him again physically until the second coming, he has right now a perfect perspective on your life and he knows how to get you to the end. He knows how to save you to the uttermost. We just need to walk by faith and realize that he's interceding for us, that he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us. And as he said in John 6, 39, I don't lose anything that the Father gave to me. I will raise it all up on the last day. Anyone that the Father gives to me, I do not lose him. God is able, God is faithful to complete the work he's begun in us. Amen? Walking by faith is realizing those things and living according to it. Now look what happens in verse 48. And Jesus, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. So they were straining at the oars now. Literally, they were harassed. They were harassed in rowing. In other words, the going got tough. Whereas other times they've been on the lake and just, oh, this is lovely. Everything is beautiful. Everything is good. Oh, Peter, I love you, bro. I love you, James. Oh, this is so nice. Now it's like, oh, oh gosh, what's happening? I can't row. I'm tired. It's too hard. It's confusing. It's getting dark. I can't see. I don't understand. They were harassed. Have you ever felt that way in your life? They were harassed. It says that the wind was against them. Did you ever feel that everything is going against you? It doesn't matter what you do. It's just, oh, that didn't work. Uh, this didn't work. Oh, that's not working out. Oh, this isn't going right. That's exactly the situation that these guys were in. It says in the parallel account in Matthew 14, verse 24, that they were battered by the waves, literally tormented by the waves. They were harassed in rowing, and they were tormented by the circumstances. The ship was going down, people. They thought it was the end. And it says that Jesus came to them in the fourth watch of the night. The Hebrews divided the night up into four watches. The first watch was from 6 to 9. The second watch was from 9 p.m. till midnight. The third watch was from midnight until 3 a.m. And the fourth watch was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Jesus waited until sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. till he finally came to them. Now, when did they get in the boat? We're told here and in Matthew 14, they got in the boat when it was evening. Evening in the Hebraic or Jewish mindset, mindset meant sometime between 3 and 6 p.m. So it could have been as late as 6 p.m. that they got in the boat. If Jesus came as early as 3 a.m., they had been in the boat for nine hours being harassed. Think about it. If they had gotten in the boat as early as 3 p.m., which is totally possible, and Jesus didn't come until almost 6 a.m., they had been in the boat for some 12 hours now. They had been in the boat for a long time, fighting, battling, despairing, and Jesus waited until just before dawn, before he came. Why? It is always darkest before the dawn. 
In other words, Jesus wanted them to get to the end of themselves. Jesus wanted them to exhaust all their know-how, all their resources, all their worldly wisdom, all their self-reliance and self-assurance. Jesus wanted them to be rid of it all, to get to the end of themselves that they might get to the beginning of God. Because I imagine for four hours they could have kept it up. Oh, come on, Pete. This is nothing, man. We've been in lots of storms. Oh, yeah. Me and my brother, we've been in this stuff all the time. Listen, turn left, turn right, head that way. Come on, we know what to do. And as it got darker and darker and darker and went longer and longer and longer and more water came into the boat, they began to despair for their lives. Jesus Christ determined to strip them of everything that he might finally settle their souls. That is why Abraham had to wait 25 years for the promise of the son. 25 years for the promise of the son. All the while, God was purging out of Abraham's self-reliance and purging into him God-reliance, bringing him to the place that he could not do it himself. That is where God wants us to be. That is when Christianity is an adventure, when we get over ourselves and into God. The end of ourselves is the beginning of God. And so he's purging out of them self-reliance and building into them God-reliance. When he came to them, it was God's time. Don't you hate that? In our flesh, we hate that. You're going through a trial or a tribulation. You're waiting on God and you come to a brother for some exhortation, for some encouragement. You come into the church for counsel and you sit down with Pastor G and Pastor G goes, tell me what's happening. And you talk about how nothing is working out. And Pastor G's going to say to you, hey man, God's timing. Pastor G, don't give me that God's timing stuff, man. I need something right now. Can't you give me a quick fix? He'll never do that because he's a man of God and because he counsels biblically. He'll say to you, no, you, you've got to wait on God. You've got to trust in God. You've got to be faithful. You've got to be obedient. You've got to make good decisions, do the right things, and you will see the deliverance of God. But he is purging out of you something that need not be there. He is purging out of you something that is going to hinder your walk with him and your effectiveness in the kingdom and your spiritual health. And he will come at the right time. You see, God is never late. When Isaac was born to Abraham, it was at the right time, at the appointed time, God said to Sarah. When Lazarus was dead and he had been in the tomb for four days and Jesus finally shows up, he came at the exact perfect moment. He knows exactly what he's doing. Understand this. If you are waiting on God, it is because God is working. God never has you on hold. It's not as though you come to the throne of God and say, God, I need help. And he goes, hold on, please, got another call. And you're on hold for years? That's not what God does. If he has you waiting in ambiguity, in difficulty, in uncertainty, in a trying thing, it is because he is working in you something for eternal glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not to the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You see, God wants to get your eyes off the here and now and get your eyes focused on eternity, on Him, to get God's perspective momentary light affliction. Listen to me very carefully. When Paul says momentary light affliction, you and I would call it absolutely psychotic despair. Paul's momentary light affliction was being beaten three times with a whip, the same one that Jesus was beaten with. It was being beaten five times with a rod. It was being shipwrecked three different times. It was spending a night and a day out in the deep in the Mediterranean where there's probably sharks. Momentary light affliction for him was the snake jumping out of the fire and biting him in the book of Acts. Momentary light affliction for him was his body disfigured as he had been stoned outside the walls of Ephesus and left for dead. And Paul says, momentary light affliction. No big deal, I don't sweat that. Why is he able to say that? Because he knows that it, is pro- uh, that it is producing for him 
an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. You see, Paul has an eternal perspective. When we're waiting, it's because God is working. Romans 8.18. Oh, Romans 8.18. Paul, again, For I consider that the present sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Anything that we go through in this lifetime, it is not worthy of what we're going to see in heaven. We can't even compare it. Paul says, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to whine. I'm going to persevere and be faithful to God. What a superhero. The mistake of the disciples here is in verse 49. Verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and they cried out for they all saw him and they were frightened. Here's the mistake of the disciples. They assumed the worst instead of expecting the best from God. They assumed the worst instead of expecting the best. When they saw Jesus, they instantly thought, ah, it's a ghost! They were given to fear and superstition, listen, listen, to imagination and speculation. Peter, what is that? I don't know. I don't know. Matthew, you're smart. You're a tax collector. What is it? I don't know. It's probably a ghost. Yeah, it's a ghost for sure. Oh, I doubt it, said Thomas. No, it's probably a ghost. Instead of expecting goodness from God, they feared the worst. And so listen to what that did. Listen very seriously now. Listen to what that did. It opened them up to the enemy's realm, which is imagination and speculation. That is why Philippians 4.8 tells us, let your mind dwell on that which is true. Because when we begin to speculate without knowledge in the midst of a trial and tribulation, we open ourselves up to the influence of the enemy who always wants to come in with lies and with fear and confusion. God is not a God of confusion. His perfect love casts out fear. The enemy wants you afraid and confused and saying, I don't know, it's probably this, it's probably that, it's got to be the very worst. When the godly attitude is to be looking for the very best when we're waiting on God. So what we need to do is back away from the circumstances and begin to look for God. David, the psalmist, if anybody ever was given a world of trouble by God, it was David, the psalmist. He was anointed as king, but then he had to suffer under Saul for, several, for a long time. And Saul would throw spears at him and try to kill him and pursue him and hunt him. And David would be hanging out in the caves fearing for his life. David would pretend like he was a lunatic in front of Abimelech to get away from Saul. All these ridiculous things. And in Psalm 27, the story is no different. David is fearing for his life once again. And then he comes to a moment of clarity. He's not going to speculate. He's not going to imagine. Now he comes to a moment of clarity. And he says in Psalm 27, verse 13 and 14, I would have despaired. I would have freaked out if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. You see, if we don't have faith, we have every reason to despair. But if we'll simply say what David said, hey, you know what? Yeah, stuff is rough right now. I'm not going to lie to you. Stuff is hard. And I'd be freaking out if I didn't believe that God was going to bring some good from it. But I believe that I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, means in this lifetime here and now. I believe I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord, so I'm going to wait for the Lord. I'm going to let my heart take courage. I'm going to wait for the Lord. That's a godly attitude, and that is faith. If God has us waiting, it's because he is working. Again, please memorize Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good for those who love him according to his, or for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And memorize Romans 8, verses 38 through 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul again says, I am positive that I will never be separated from the love of God, that he is faithful to get me to the other side. And when he says, get in the boat and go to the other side, no matter what storms come my way, God is going to deliver me. He is able to save to the very end those who trust in him. 
because he ever lives to make intercession for them. Paul was such a superstar. Paul, if somebody came and threatened Paul, and his life was threatened frequently, they could say, Paul, we're not down with your whole Jesus gig. Paul, we're going to kill you, man. He'd say, really? To die is gain, bro. Bring it on. To die is gain. Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You're going to kill me? To die is gain in my perspective. And so someone could say to him, hmm. Okay, Paul, we're not going to kill you. We're going to make you live. Really? Hey, man, to live is Christ. It's no longer I who lives. It's Christ who lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in him, man. You're going to let me live? Oh, praise the Lord. Oh, no. What we're going to do, Paul, is we're going to torture you. Oh, cool, man. I don't consider these present sufferings worthy to be compared with the glory that we shall see in Christ Jesus. You can kill me. You can let me live. You can torture me. I don't sweat it because I believe in Jesus. Amen? That was the attitude of Paul. So good, so real, so biblical. Contrast that with Peter. Matthew chapter 14, as we turn to the parallel account of our text, Matthew chapter 14. Peter. I love Peter. With Peter, you take the good and the bad. Jesus gets in the boat in Matthew 14, verse 27. I'm sorry, he doesn't get in the boat yet. He speaks to them, says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Verse 28, and Peter answers to him. And said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come on. Lord, if it's you, my faith is increased now. You see, we've been in the storm for 9 to 12 hours. We thought we were going to die. We were absolutely freaking out. And then you come walking right on the water. We were so afraid of the water. It seemed like such an overwhelming circumstance. And you're just walking on it. You're so in control. He walks right on the circumstances that seem overwhelming. Lord, my faith is increased now. If it's you, tell me to walk on the water. Oh, Peter, I love you. And so he says, come, come. And so Peter gets out, and Peter begins to walk on the water. And it says in verse 29, and Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. You see, we can't be too hard on Peter. He had amazing faith. He had absolutely amazing faith. And his faith was increased when it should have been through the midst of the storm. And seeing Jesus in the midst of the storm, he walked on water. Maybe some of you have, but I think he's the only person in history other than Jesus to walk on water. It's absolutely astounding. Peter is walking on the water. Now, we often talk about this, and we tell people, hey man, sometimes you just got to get out of the boat. And I used to think that what that meant, get out of the boat, like Peter got out of the boat, I used to think that it meant uh, uh, step into the unknown. That's not at all what it meant. You see, Peter knew exactly what he was stepping into. Peter was a fisherman all his life. He knew the temperature of the water. He knew the depth of the water. He knew the height of the waves. And he knew the force of the wind. He knew exactly what he was stepping into, and he stepped into it anyway. That is where the faith came in. He had faith in God to face overwhelming circumstances. That is wonderful. That is wonderful. Peter leaned his legs or, or, or draped his legs over the boat, and I imagine he looked down and said, <laughs> all right, here we go. And he walked on water until. He walked on water until. Next verse. Verse 30. But seeing the wind, he became afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. He was walking toward Jesus, and then he began to remember again the circumstances. He began to probably say something like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is impossible. I can't do this. This is really scary. It's dark. The waves are big. And look at this wind. You see, when he got his eyes off of the Lord and onto the circumstances, he began to sink again. He began to sink. Not again for the first time. Colossians chapter 3. I'll just read it to you unless you can go there quickly. Colossians chapter 3, very important in the midst of trials and tribulations. Colossians chapter 3 says this, verse 1. 
If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For if you have died and your life is hidden with Christ, for you have died and your life is hidden in Christ our God. Keep seeking the things above. Don't give up halfway through. See, Peter had tremendous faith halfway through, but you got to see it through to the end. Get your eyes off the circumstances. The enemy always wants you on the circumstances. The world around us always wants to throw them up and go, no, you can't. No, you can't. No, this is impossible. Just keep your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Now I want you to see the end. Verse 32 of Matthew 14. Or verse 31, And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Certainly you are the Son of God. It wasn't until they had been in the worst circumstances of their entire life that they now say, You for sure are God in the flesh. And they began to worship Him. God had revealed Himself to them. He had allowed them into the storm. They thought they were going to sink. And what it did was allow them to connect the dots of who Jesus Christ was. They didn't get it from the miracle. They only got it from the storm. They didn't get it from the miracle. They only got it from the storm. Is there a difficult time in your life right now, even though you're following God? Embrace it. Embrace it. God has something wonderful He wants to show you. Be obedient, be faithful to the end, and you will find yourself worshiping God like never before. Gaining insight, gaining understanding, your heart being softened, our best perspective on life in God is always in the midst of the storm. Amen? Father, we thank you this morning for your clear word. Once again, it is a picture of your faithfulness. Every time we open your word, God, we see that you are faithful and that you are able and that you are wonderfully concerned with our well-being. Concerned enough to bring into our lives some storms. And so I simply pray for those right now who are going through storms, Lord, that you would encourage them with these truths, that you would begin to instruct them in their hearts as to how to persevere as to how to wait, how to respond to you, how to trust in you. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And for those of us who aren't in a storm, but we're on the mountaintop right now, just experiencing glory, equip us in that time, Lord. Strengthen our faith in that time. For after the mountain comes the valley, after the miracle of feeding the thousands comes the storm on the sea. Make us ready, Lord, in season and out of season. Settle our souls that you are so totally God to us that nothing can derail us, nothing can deflate us, nothing could sink us, nothing could undo us. Set our feet on the sure rock. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion. They shall not be moved. As the mountains around about Jerusalem, so is the Lord about his people. Thank you, God. Encourage your saints with faith today as we worship you now and come to the communion table. In Jesus' name, amen.